Good morning, church. It's good to see and be with you again. And just like before, thank you for always sitting in your same places every time. It hasn't changed in, since I've known you. You're still in the same places. So I know where to look to find Davenport, and, you know, just all the, you know, anybody. There, and I can't see that far to see who's sitting on the back row, but I'm sure I know you. I just don't remember what you look like. You know, is this mic working too? Because I like to roam a little bit if I can. Is this mic working? Okay. Would you say that we live at an interesting time in the history of the world? Would you say that? Would you say that this interesting time in which we live is just awesomely good? There's one back in the back that says, awesomely good. Would you say that this interesting time that we live in has room for improvement? And if, it need, if we have room for improvement, where does that need to start? Where? Right here. You can all just take your finger and do this. The room for improvement comes from me. I answer to God for me. I, you, I don't answer to God for you. Okay? There was a group of guys standing up here before we started our worship today. And I was, in, I was told that it was not really an official meeting, but it was sort of official. That everybody, these, these six guys always congregate right here. I don't really know what they talk about. I'm not sure we want to know what they talk about. <laughs> but it is necessary for them to be right here and get things straightened out. Maybe there are six guys who have already said it's up to me to help improve things in this world of ours. Here's what I believe about all that that I just said and asked. I think this world's been falling apart since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. That's what I believe. And I think it's going to continue to get worse until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again and takes us home. That's what I believe. It's, it's just waiting between those two entities of time gets me upset all the time. I mean, what can I do about the war in Ukraine? What can I do? Nothing. I can't do anything but pray. Okay? And I'm not downplaying the role of prayer in being able to get things changed. I am saying, though, that there are so many things going on in our world that need to be addressed by people who are good, people who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got so many things we could be doing it becomes so overwhelming, we do nothing. We do nothing. And I'm talking about me. You have to answer for yourself. Dwight, I love the book of, of Philippians as well, just like you do. I don't know what we would do 
as believers in Jesus Christ if we didn't have the Apostle Paul write that book? What if he had left that book out? What if it had never been found? To me, it's the most encouraging book in a world gone mad that we can read over and over again. I've been assigned Philippians 1. And we're not going to go anywhere else except for Philippians 1 today. But there's plenty that we need to read. If you have your Bibles, just turn to Philippians chapter 1 and let's start reading. Paul and Timothy, servants of the Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gets to the heart of his message. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We fit into that block of time that Paul just described. We are for sure descendants of those who were in the church in Philippi. Did you know that the city of Philippi was the only church, uh, the only place in the Roman kingdom right then that Paul went to establish a church that didn't have a synagogue? And so when he walks into the city of Philippi, as he normally would do anyplace else, he would go to the synagogue so that he could meet with his Jewish brethren and hopefully be able to get up and be asked to speak. But not so in Philippi. Interestingly enough, since the city of Philippi was filled with Romans, uh, it was a very Roman city. In fact, a lot of retired military people who served in the Roman army retired there and actually were given a piece of land so that they would be honored for their service under Caesar. But when Paul gets to Philippi, he starts preaching a message on the streets of the city that is not a very popular message, as you might understand. Paul goes on to say in this letter, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have in my own heart, for, wh for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me, and you can testify how long for all of you, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I have worked on the staff of several churches in the Oklahoma City area since I gave up my career in the electric utility business, and I've often wondered, and even the churches where I grew up in, if someone were to write a letter to the church where I was a member from the Apostle Paul, what would be in that letter about that church where I was attending? 
What, what would be pointed out in that, in that uh, short letter or long letter? What would, what would Paul's words be to the church where I was a member? I've often wondered what, what that would be like. In my time on this earth, I have been a member of over 20 churches of Christ. Some of you haven't even, you're not even that old yet. But just imagine what I have seen in my lifetime being in 21 different churches of Christ across the United States. I moved a lot. My parents moved a lot before we finally settled down in Norman. When I took my job with the power company, uh, they transferred me about every two years. And over 25 years, you can see that's, that's 12 churches right there. I've been a member of Churches of Christ in Texas, in Oklahoma, in Arkansas, Louisiana, um, Indiana. Um, well, I, there's probably a couple, Tennessee. And here's what I remember about being parts of that church. And it, and it meant different things to me depending on what my age was. There was always in those churches a core group of people who got things done. Does that make sense? Have you seen it in this church that you've seen that a core group of people always get things done? And they continue to always continue to get things done. And you don't have to ask them to do anything. They just naturally show up. If you've ever seen an Amish uh, story on, on one of the networks and you've watched them rebuild a barn after a barn fire and how all the Amish people show up and they stay there and they build that barn back for that family until it's completed and people bring food in and, the, and they, they rest very little until that barn is put back up, it's an amazing story. I saw a documentary on it on, on one of the networks. What would be said about the letter that was written about this church? How many of you were here when the tornado came through back in the late 90s? How many of you were a part of this church when the tornado came back through back in the late 90s? Did this church have anything at all to do with helping people, taking care of people? Did, did, was that going on here or was just the lights barely on? You remember. This church was a shining star in this community. You remember that? Do you remember how tired you got when you gave all you had to trying to find clothes that people could wear? To let them find a refrigerator or, or a stove? Or, and you, it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks until it ended. In 2011, my family and I left Oakcrest because our daughter got sick. I'm not going to tell that story again. I don't want to bore you with all those details. But when I left, when my family and I, Lisa and I in Montana, left this church in 2011, the average attendance of this congregation on Sundays, and I kept up with this because that was part of my job, the average attendance on Sundays was around 850 people. 
850 people. Where are they? Where are those people? Well, some have left simply by passing away. You've had people die. Some have left because, in their words, they outgrew this church. Some have left because they got upset with somebody. And then that person got upset with somebody, and then that person got upset with somebody, and then here we are today, we've got maybe, what'd you say, Bill? We, normal 200? So where are those 600 people, folks? And what are they doing? My question today is, according to the words of Paul here in Philippians chapter 1, is this, this part, this, this congregation that is left is not dead. Do you hear me? This congregation is not dead. But it's dying. Slowly but surely, it's dying one way or the other. Either by physical death. I mean, all, all of us are going to die. We can't escape it unless the Lord comes before it happens. But the older you get, the less we want to do anything. The less energy we have to do those kinds of things that need to be done in a congregation. And folks, you can't afford to lose any more people. You've got to make your stand right here, right now. And everybody, everybody has to do something. Verse 9 in Philippians chapter 1. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That... That is the responsibility of any church. I don't care what name is on their sign outside. I don't care what kind of denomination they claim to be a part of. That, those words by Paul, are the mission of this church. And that mission will never change. It may not get done, but the fact that that mission remains for this church, it's, you can't just cross those verses out. You must do something. I want to uh, borrow some words about one of my favorite authors. Some of you have heard of John Ortberg. This book that he wrote, if you want to walk on water, you better get out of the boat, um, was written back in 2001. And... I didn't pick this book up again until I started reading Philippians chapter 1, and I thought, you know what? I remember some things that John Ortberg had to say. 
about getting involved and getting up and going about the cause of Christ. So I'm going to, I'm going to borrow some of his words here. This is from the first chapter on water walking. He says, um, <clears throat> excuse me, here is a deep truth about walking on water. I'm going to put a cough drop in real quick. Here's the truth about walking on water. The fear of walking on water will never go away. The fear of walking on water will never go away. Let me explain. The disciples get into the boat, they face the storm, they see the water walker and are afraid. And Jesus has the gall to say, don't be afraid. Peter then girds up his loins and asks permission to go overboard. And then he sees the wind. And he's afraid all over again. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. Don't be afraid. Well, do you think that's the last time Peter's ever going to experience fear? The fear will never go away. Why? Because each time I want to grow... It will involve going into new territory. Now listen. Taking on new challenges. And each time I do that, I will experience fear again. As Susan Jeffers writes, the fear will never go away as long as I continue to grow. Never is that great news? Does that mean we can just give up trying to make fear go away? Fear and growth go together like macaroni and cheese. It's a package deal. The decision to grow always involves a choice between risk and comfort. And this means that to be a follower of Jesus, you must renounce comfort as the ultimate value in your life. And that should be sobering news to most of us. Because you see, like me... I enjoy comfort. I enjoy comfort. I like my air conditioner. I like my vehicle that my wife and I drive. I, I enjoy the comfort of being able to buy food and eat normally what I like to eat. I, I enjoy where I live. Um, I like the friends that I have. Uh, in Oklahoma, one day I can run my air conditioner, and the next day I can run the heater, and they both work. Okay? But comfort gets in the way of growth. Are you listening? Comfort gets in the way of growth. Ortenberg goes on to say, would you like to guess the name of the best-selling chair in America? The Lazy Boy. Not Risky Boy. Not Worker Boy. Just Lazy Boy. We want to immerse ourselves in comfort. We have developed a whole language around this. People say, I want to go home and veg out. Make myself as much like a vegetarian as humanly possible, preferably in front of the TV set. 
We have a name for people who do this in front of the TV. They're called couch potatoes. Couch potatoes in their lazy boys. The 11 disciples probably could have been called the boat potatoes. They didn't mind watching, but they sure didn't want to actually go out there and try to walk on water. Millions of people in churches these days could be called pew potatoes. They want some of the comfort associated with spirituality, but they don't want the risk and the challenge that goes along with that. Yet Jesus is still looking for people who will get out of the boat. He's looking for someone who will say, if you'll pardon the expression, I may be small potatoes, Lord, but this spuds for you. This spuds for you. Get, get it? They got it. You didn't get it. <laughs> and as we see in this book, both choices, risk and comfort, need to grow into a habit. Each time you get out of the boat, you become a little more likely to get out of the boat the next time. It's not that the fear goes away, but it's that you get used to living with fear. You realize that it does not have the power to destroy you like you've sometimes thought. On the, other on the other hand, every time you resist the voice, every time you choose to stay in the boat, rather than heed its call, the voice gets a little quieter in you. And then at the last, you don't hear the voice at all. Last year, in the year 2021, in the United States of America, 410 churches closed their doors for the final time. The year before that, 600, over 600 churches in the United States closed their door for the final time. In the year before that, over a thousand churches closed their doors for the final time. And if you want to go out and find, try to find some of those places where the church doors have been closed, you just go take a drive in western Oklahoma in the rural areas and you find out how many churches, no matter what the name is on the building, how many of those churches are now closed. I saw a picture the other day, a friend of mine who, who is an elder in the Cordell Church of Christ, the 4th Street Church of Christ in Cordell. He does a lot of driving for a living. And he goes through rural areas and he picks up tractors at farms that need to be repaired. And he takes pictures of these churches who have closed the doors for the final time. And the one that was the most eerie sight I ever saw was one that he stopped at. And he walked, it was, he couldn't get in the front door. He went around the back door. He came in. And uh, anybody familiar with that Left Behind movie series? You know what I mean? People just get taken and they, and. and they're just gone and there's nobody there. He took several pictures inside this church building and the, and the song books were still in the racks and the Bibles and the cradle was still in the, in the nursery and the blankets were stacked up in the corner and the communion implements were on the table. Everything was as, as if the Lord had come back and taken them all. They were just gone, poof, and they never came back.
Paul says it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others preach out of goodwill. The latter do so in love. Knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for a while while I'm in change, but what, it does, what, what does it matter? The only, the only thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of that, I rejoice. You have guest preachers that come in here from time to time. Sometimes Scott is carrying most of the load. Sometimes Dwight preaches, okay? You're at a time, you're at a time in the life of this church where more of you have got to stand up here where I am and at least be able to read a Bible verse or two to edify your congregation. You shouldn't say, no, I can't do that, because pretty soon it'll be 12 people that are here still clinging to this church, keeping the doors open, and they're doing everything. I don't want this church to become a statistic. There's too much potential here. And of course, you know what the three, five worst words about anybody that's a manager of a business, when he talks to his employee? You have so much potential, but I can't use you. Let me keep reading. Paul says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and, to help, and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I, no, I will no way be ashamed, but have sufficient courage so that as always with Christ, I'll be, uh, when I'm always with Christ, I will be exalted in, the, in my body. Christ will be exalted in my body, excuse me. Whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I, I don't know what to do. I'm torn between the two. I desire to go and be with Christ. It would be better for me by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on count of me. The title of my sermon today, you might have seen in the bulletin, was called Lean In or Leaning In. My dad taught me a very valuable lesson as a young boy. One of the best things my dad ever taught, taught me to do was to be a good worker, to, be, to outwork anybody else that was on the team. That's what those of us without any talent have to do in order to get the job done. We have to outwork everybody else. But I thought I was going to be an athlete when I was growing up. And I was one, but it was a very, I was a very poor athlete. But I still went out and played. I played baseball. I played basketball. Um, I played football for a time until they, people just got too big for me. I just... Never, never could catch up with them. But one, one, one of the things my dad said to me, he said, son, I know you think you need to be a racehorse. But you're not. And you're never going to be a racehorse. But you are going to be the finest plow horse that's ever lived. 
Now, you just think about that. Now, I didn't, didn't really appreciate those words at the time. But as I got older and um, be- began my career out there in the world, I realized that what my dad was talking about is that I had a gift of strength and stamina. And I really could outwork most people, whether it was physical or in the office. I re- I'd stay late in order to get the job done if I had to. His words were, son, the world is a really dark place out there, but you just have to lean into it. I don't know whether you all are walkers like me. My wife and I walk. I walk, try to walk four and a half miles a day. She tries to walk three miles a day. And some of those days are like yesterday and the day before when the wind was blowing at 40 miles an hour. Okay? When you walk into a 40 mile an hour wind, um, you, I, I'm really glad that I'm kind of short and stocky because that wind cannot move me off of my position. But I still, when I walk into that wind, I'm doing this. That's life. That's life out there and that's life in here. It's, a, it's, it's about leaning into the trouble and the chaos that we see. If we could do a time-lapse photography starting in 2011, every Sunday we did time-lapse photography. And we took pictures across this auditorium. If we, if we had the capability of going back and doing that and we put that show up on the, on the screen here, you people would gasp you would gasp at how many people that are gone. You, you would find it unbelievable. You would say, that can't be true, though somebody's messed with the camera. But folks, 850 souls in 2011, that's 11 years ago, and now it's 200 on a good day. I'm speaking truth to you, so I want you to be people who we will be willing to lean in to what needs to be done in this congregation. If you've got a breath to breathe, you can always pray. People who lean in recognize God's presence. You can mark these down if you want to. You can read Psalms 139, 7 through 10 if you want to write that down. People who lean in, recognize God's presence. You see, as long as God's presence is recognized, we don't feel like we're all alone. We don't feel like we're all alone. Number two, people who lean in to life and church life must discern between faith and foolishness. They must discern between faith and foolishness. Read Proverbs 2, verses 6 through 11. Someone who's leaning in is always aware and expects problems to arise. People who are leaning in are going eyes wide, and when they see problems come, it's not a surprise. They anticipate them. And they have a solution before the problem ever arises. You cannot grow in any entity, including a church, if you're always in the reaction mode. If you're always trying to take care of a problem, you're not going to grow. You're going, to, you're, you're going to fade away. 
you're going to fade away. People who lean in accept fear as the price of growth and failure as an opportunity to grow even more. I'm going to read that one again. That was kind of long. People who lean in accept fear as the price of growth and they accept failure as an opportunity to grow. 1 John, 1 John 4, verses, uh, verse 18 for that one. People who lean in learn to wait on God. People who lean in learn to wait on God. You can read Psalm 27, verse 14. No, I, I get that. I, nobody likes to wait on God, do we? I mean, sometimes God's so slow. Haven't you said that? Haven't you said that in your prayer sometimes? You say, God, I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. You're just so slow. And then he reminds me, slow by whose standard? To God, there is no time. One day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. It's always going to happen in God's time, not our time. So we have to be patient and wait on God. And the last one is people who lean in receive a much deeper connection with God. That's because they're always available to represent God in every circumstance that arises in their purview. You can read Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 through, 4, or 9 through 14 if you want to check that one out. So I'm going to go through those again. Recognize God's presence. Discern between faith and foolishness. Expect problems. Accept fear as the price of growth and failure as an opportunity to grow. Learn to wait on the Lord. Receive a deeper connection with God. All in all, it's about avoiding control and not being wound up and being comfortable all the time. If somebody came up with a bright idea, one of the elders or somebody else in the church came up with a, a bright idea about how to get, how to get this church stabilized and, and perhaps growing again, um, would that person have a voice here? Or would the reaction be, we've tried that before and we're not going to try that again? Folks, we're living in desperate times. The church worldwide is living in desperate times. The likelihood of this building being filled again every week is very unlikely. So what are you going to do with who you have? There are people here who have talents, but still sit. You, you've got to stop sitting. You must stop sitting. And you must be aware of the reality that if this church can go from 850 souls to roughly 200 souls in 11 years, what's it going to be like five years from now? What's it going to be like eight years from now? What's it going to be like 10 years from now? 
Maybe you could all meet right here. This would be the congregation. If not you, then who? If not me, then who? Pogo said one time in the funny papers, we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. We are our own worst enemy. It's time to step out. When we share this Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, I want to encourage you to lean into that, to what it really means, to what it really stands for. No, we don't believe that the that the juice turns into God's literal blood or Jesus' literal blood, and we don't believe that the cracker that we eat turns into his literal body. We don't believe that, but we do know what it represents. And that that representation of his body and blood, perhaps very close to being the most sacred thing we do when we come together on the Lord's Day. I'm not sure anything else could be as sacred. So lean into it this time. Shed a tear if you want to. Because it's his body and his blood that has allowed us to be a part of his kingdom. Let's do that as we partake.